Thanks for tuning in to the Diabetes Dish Podcast, brought to you by OnTrackDiabetes.com and the OnTrack Diabetes app, available for the iPhone and Android. Here's your host, Ann Galt. This is the Diabetes Dish. I'm Ann Galt. Type 1 writer and diabetes advocate Quinn Nystrom will be taking over the podcast today to discuss the important research she and her Center for Change colleague, Jenica Beagley, conducted and presented this summer at the American Association of Diabetes Educators. Quinn, who went through residential treatment for her own bulimia, will be speaking with Jenica, a nurse practitioner and certified diabetes educator, about the problem of disordered eating and insulin emission in people with type 1 diabetes. Like Quinn, Jenica also has type 1 and has been part of the diabetes program at the Center for Change in Orem, Utah since 2013. The Center for Change is a respected, renowned eating disorder program. Their work is raising awareness about the problem and helping to inform parents and healthcare providers about the often secretive and always dangerous behavior many young female type 1s may be engaging in. Welcome, Jenica and Quinn. So thank you so much, Jenica. I'm really looking forward to getting to talk with you uh, today on the podcast. Um, I'm going to start out here uh, with the first question, which is um, to tell uh, the viewers uh, a little bit about Center for Change and the role that you have there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you about diabetes and eating disorders and Center for Change. At the Center for Change, um, I'm a nurse practitioner, but Center for Change is a specialized hospital for treating eating disorders and has a specific program for diabetes. So my role there is not only nurse practitioner, but I'm the diabetes team leader and diabetes educator. So what I do is I meet regularly with all of the patients at Center for Change with diabetes. I make medication and insulin adjustments. I answer a lot of questions. And I think my biggest role, I always tell patients, is that I'm their cheerleader. (laughs) You know, I'm just supporting them on their path to recovery from an eating disorder. But because diabetes does not have a cure right now, I'm helping them manage manage their diabetes along their recovery path. Yeah, it's an important work that you do. What got you interested in working with women with eating disorders? That's a good question. I um, I was always interested in the unique combination of diabetes and eating disorders. I worked in a clinic, a diabetes clinic for a long time, and, and I saw some women with eating disorders that they disclosed to me. Um, But what really, I guess, got me excited about working with women with eating disorders is when my my friend, who's a mentor of mine, 
invited me to apply for a nurse practitioner position at Center for Change. And right at that time, Center for Change was looking to strengthen their diabetes program. And I thought that was so interesting coming from a diabetes education background. And I definitely wanted to work more with the patients with diabetes and eating disorders. I always wish I could have helped those those patients that I had worked with in the past more. That's great. What what is so unique about the the EDDMT1 program at Center for Change? That's a good question. I think a few things that make the program at Center for Change very unique is we have a staff and a diabetes team that has personal experience with diabetes. Not only do I have diabetes, but our consulting endocrinologist has type 1. We have nurses that have type 1 or family members or children with type 1, and our staff are well-trained in diabetes. So I think that's one unique thing that, that kind of sets us apart. And I feel like the people here really care and they have compassion that is that is at the top of the company that kind of trickles down, you know, to all of the staff where it's really a, a place of hope and gives people a fresh start. We we like to say as a diabetes team, we have a fresh start approach and identify those positive um positive things to to build on and meet the patients where where they're at. Absolutely. And I know another kind of unique thing about the program really is there's not that many eating disorder treatment programs in the United States that have a specialty track, correct? Um that that treat specifically women with type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder. I mean, that actually have it as a specialty, correct? Right. So we do have a specialized team where we have not only medical providers, but therapists and dietitians who specialize in, in diabetes as well. And we have a diabetes-specific group um, that's headed by one of these therapists. So I think that really does set us apart. And that goes into my next question, maybe, um, you know, of, of the uniqueness of, of Center for Changes program, but then what makes treating a patient uh, with this co-occurring illness so challenging? You know, what makes it so unique in its nature? Why would you need a, a specialty program to treat a patient uh, with these two co-occurring illnesses? That's that's a good question. And I think the most challenging thing about treating an eating disorder with diabetes is that you can recover from an eating disorder, but there's not a cure for diabetes yet. And many of the things that we do just to manage diabetes every day can be so triggering 
to someone who has an eating disorder. And so that's why I think that it's so challenging to treat an eating disorder with type one, but it is possible. And could you give, you know, for some people maybe who are listening, um, could you give some examples of what those would be? So what somebody has to do with for their diabetes that would be triggering in the eating disorder world for somebody who's trying to be in recovery from an eating disorder? Definitely. Well, with having diabetes, there is such a focus on food. Um, someone with type 1 diabetes no longer produces insulin, and insulin, as we know, is a hormone that helps our bodies to um, absorb carbohydrate, right? And so, and keep our blood sugars in a healthy range. So if you have an eating disorder, that focus on food can be very triggering. You have to count every carbohydrate that goes in your mouth. Um, also, the focus on numbers, we're monitoring our blood sugars all of the time, even being weighed at our at our appointments that we go to. And we also take insulin. And sometimes our providers um, will tell us that we start taking insulin and we'll start gaining weight. and so all of those things can be triggering if you have an eating disorder. In fact, maybe we'll talk about this later, but um, one eating disorder behavior that I've seen women use to lose weight is stop taking their insulin. Because as, as you stop taking your insulin, your body um, is not getting those carbohydrates that it needs for energy and so your body looks for other sources of energy and starts breaking down those body tissues and also losing a lot of glucose um, by excreting it through the urine and so your body's losing a lot of calories that way when you stop taking your insulin. So those are some of the behaviors that um, that we see in patients with diabetes and eating disorders and why it can be why just treating diabetes can be triggering. Absolutely. I can see why that would make it so challenging and why um, I can see the importance then of why you would really need a comprehensive, dedicated team who understands uh, treating eating disorder, but just as much treating diabetes as well and how those two work together and, and how they also can work against each other. Um, and so a little bit of what you just alluded to, um, why is there so much confusion about the use of terms that we kind of hear thrown around of diabulimia and then also what I referred to earlier, which I know the Center for Change program refers to it as, as EDDMT1. And can you kind of explain the difference, you know, in layman terms, uh, to the listeners between the two, because I do think there's a lot of confusion to people, um, you know, if that's on social media or if that's they're listening to a podcast or if they're just, you know, uh, reading something in a newspaper. Could you help people better understand that? Sure. So a lot of the times those those two terms are used interchangeably, right? However. The term diabulimia is a term that's used more in the media, 
and it's very catchy, I think, kind of rolls off the tongue, but that the definition of that term really is um, when a person omits insulin for weight loss that I described earlier. So it's losing those calories or purging those calories by, um, by not taking their insulin. And that's kind of the bulimia part and the dia is the diabetes part. So it's kind of like diabetes, bulimia, purging calories by, by not taking the insulin. But that doesn't incorporate all of the other eating disorder behaviors that someone might engage in when they have an eating disorder. So EDDMT1 really encompasses it all, not only insulin omission, but maybe other behaviors besides the omission of insulin that someone might engage in for weight loss. And they might still be taking their insulin and still might be a healthy weight, but they might be engaging in other behaviors. They might be restricting calories or cutting carbs all, all out of their diet altogether or over-exercising, taking laxatives or diet pills, um, other eating disorder behaviors that might not be included in the, in the diabolemia term, if that makes sense. EDDMT1 is the term that you'll see most commonly in medical research or, or medical professionals may refer to that um, more often. That makes sense. Um, and then, um, so I understand the diabulimia and then the EDDMT1 part. So eating disorder uh, and diabetes type one. Got it. Okay, perfect. I just want to make sure that everybody will get to understand those two. Um, and then, uh, going on to my next question, um, and, and I should ask, um, just so people understand, because I think sometimes then people think almost um, is EDDMT1 a different diagnosis than diabulimia. But what you're really trying to say is they're not the same thing. They're just two different terms that have been thrown out. So call an eating disorder with people with type 1 diabetes. Correct. But I think right. diabulimia is is more commonly used for um, someone with type 1 diabetes who does not take their insulin to lose weight or keeps their blood sugars high to to lose weight. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, and I think maybe, and this brings us into maybe my next question, which is, you know, the research that you conducted recently um, that you and I presented together at this year's American Association of Diabetes Educators Conference in Baltimore, um, I'm interested to, to hear you kind of talk about it here on this podcast, because I think it's so interesting. And I know we got a lot of great feedback on it when people were stopping by. Um, I would love for you to kind of explain, you know, how it was conducted and what surprised you most about the results. And I think maybe this will also touch a little bit about this whole thing about, you know, 
I don't want to say what's more common about ED, DMT1, or diabulimia, but maybe talking about, you know, a lot of people's misconceptions about how they think if somebody has an eating disorder with type 1, that it must only be insulin omission. So I know that that was a lot of questions I just threw at you, John and Cup, but um, I'm very curious to hear you talk about the research you conducted at Center for Change that we presented at AADE. So kind of what inspired you to do it, how it was conducted, and what surprised you most about the results. Okay. Well, when I started working at Center for Change, I guess I had an assumption that all of the patients that I would see would be patients who were not taking their insulin to lose weight. I mean, that's such an easy thing to do if you have type 1 diabetes, right? Um, you literally don't do anything. You don't take your insulin and it, the pounds fall off um, and you can eat whatever you want. So I thought that would be a very common behavior, which it is in the patients that I see who are at Center for Change for Eating Disorder Treatment. So I I started asking them questions, what eating disorder behaviors they engaged in, insulin omission, um, self-induced vomiting, exercise, over-exercise, all of the kind of eating disorder behavior questions. And so I, I would have them kind of rate themselves on different behaviors. So um, for, for insulin omission, for instance, I would have them rate themselves on a zero to five scale. Zero meaning they never omitted their insulin. One, they rarely, usually, often, or they always omitted their insulin. And so look, I started to look back at the answers and I was surprised that there were more patients that said that they never or rarely omitted their insulin for weight loss meaning they were engaging in other behaviors to help control their weight. And so, so that is what really um, got me interested in doing more research, is the more patients that I met with that said they didn't omit their insulin, yet they were still here for treatment for an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So I started to look at, at other things that you might that you know about as um, we presented this research. So I so I started to look at their average A1C or their average blood sugar over three months when they, they came into treatment. And if someone's omitting their insulin, then their blood sugars are going to be high. And so then again, I assumed that everyone that was coming in for eating disorder treatment would have extremely high A1Cs, but that wasn't necessarily the case. On average, the patients that said they never or rarely omitted their insulin, their A1C average was still 9%. And my assumption was they would have a lot lower A1C if they were actually taking their insulin, right? Um, and then the other, the other patients that admitted to not taking their insulin, their A1Cs, they averaged between 10 and 11.5%. So, so they weren't extremely high. They weren't off the charts. They were still measurable, yet they were keeping their, their blood sugars high to lose weight. 
So that was some interesting information. Um, another another point that I thought was interesting was I asked. There was a question. Um, if they feel fat when they take all of their insulin with the same kind of format they would they would rate themselves um either they never feel fat when they take all their insulin to they always feel fat when they take their insulin and almost 75 percent of them said that they felt fat when they took all of their insulin so even those patients that were still taking their insulin they were mm -hmm. not omitting their insulin for weight loss still said that sometimes they feel fat when they take it. So I thought that was interesting in the in the research that we were that we did. No, that's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Did I answer all your questions? Yes, you did. No, you did a great job at remembering all the questions. I as you know, I was so excited by the research you were doing and from the you know, from all the great feedback that you got in Baltimore that I was excited that you'd get to share it. Um, on this podcast and because as you and I have talked about before there's just not a lot of research that's been done on people uh, with type 1 and eating disorders in the United States specifically and so I think the research that you're getting to do at Center for Change is really exciting um, and pretty groundbreaking um, especially I think to dispel a lot of the misconceptions about uh, people with ED, DMT1, and that it's not just insulin omission uh, that is um, the main symptom used, right? That, um, you know, like for myself, uh, that was not the symptom uh, that I chose to use um, to lose weight. And so I, I think it's important um, that we're raising awareness uh, in the diabetes community and the eating disorder community uh, that people um, like myself and others um, can suffer from an eating disorder uh, while using other symptoms. And I think that's important so that people get the help um, and the support that they need, you know, um, and that they aren't bypassed um, or looked over because they don't have a double digit A1C. So um, I love the work you're doing. Thanks. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I no. I wanted to add, I think that is another reason why treating diabetes and eating disorders is so challenging is it's it's not a, a cut and dry thing. It's it's not just as easy as just take your insulin or just eat. It's it's so much more complicated than that. Jenica, I'm sure treating uh a patient with type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder is quite complicated. Can you talk about the approach that Center for Change takes in treating a patient with this co-occurring illness? Yes, definitely they realize this, but um, that's another reason why eating disorders and type 1 diabetes is, is so hard to treat because logic doesn't really work all the time, right? Um, it's not that simple to just tell them, take your insulin. Don't you know that you could have diabetes complications because of this? And so the treatment is very comprehensive, I guess you'd say, or multidisciplinary. Then there's, there's so many different approaches. Not one type of treatment is going to work for everybody. So 
um, at Center for Change, there's there's so many different therapies that patients are exposed to to um, find what works for them. So, so that's part of the the comprehensive treatment with with groups and with their individual therapist trying different things that's going to work, whether that um, be yeah a different therapy or or a different different group therapy. Um, and then as far as diabetes management, some things that might be different for treating someone with an eating disorder um, who who's been omitting their insulin. One one thing is lowering blood glucose levels gradually. Um, over time, we definitely want their blood sugars to be in a healthy range, but going from extremely high blood sugars and lower blood sugars overnight isn't the best treatment option because patients, one, their bodies have kind of gotten used to having higher higher blood sugar levels. And if we lower them too rapidly, they feel like their blood sugars are low when they're actually in a normal range maybe. Um, they also can have um, worsening neuropathy or retinopathy because of the rapid change in, in their blood sugars. So, so there's, there's some things that we um, we might do differently because they've been omitting insulin for a while where we it wouldn't be a normal approach to diabetes management otherwise. Yeah, no, it is, it's very complicated. Um, and you know that well because you've lived with type 1 diabetes for nearly 29 years. Yeah, uh, actually, that's, that information's a couple years off. I'll, it'll oh, be 30, 31 years in January. That's my anniversary. You're going to have to, so. have to up, update your bio. Update my I'm bio, so I know. Maybe I should website. just say I've had diabetes for a long time. <laughs> just, just maybe go 30 plus at this point. 30 plus um, at this point. <laughs> um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen for patients and for yourself over the years in oh, the man. world of diabetes, you know, for diabetes self-management? Yeah, and I, I have seen so many changes, and I don't even feel that old, you know, we're just in the world of diabetes. <laughs> well, you, yeah. <laughs> Three decades of diabetes, I think some of the big, like, thinking back, some of the biggest changes in my life have have been with the little things in just managing diabetes. So I think back of um, when I was diagnosed, you know, I was taking regular and MPH insulin and then Humalog came out and then Lantus. It just, there was such a life changer for me. I could actually have more flexibility in my eating and I felt like I could live more of a normal life. I wasn't imprisoned by my timing of meals, you know, um, and then insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitoring. I think that one advancement in diabetes care has um, been the biggest thing to change my life. Um, having diabetes is is having a CGM. Um, yeah. And at Center for Change, actually, this year we've we've started to monitor all of our patients with diabetes with CGM. And for those That's patients that, that have never used a CGM before, 
I think it's life changing for them as well. So that's probably my my biggest change, or um, yeah, the biggest change that I've seen that's that's helped me um, in my diabetes management. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Um, what inspired you to choose a career in medicine? Did it have anything to do with you growing up with diabetes? Oh, definitely. I think growing up with diabetes inspired me to um, be a nurse. I, I think by the time I graduated from high school, I felt like I was an expert in giving injections. So <laughs> being a nurse was just a natural fit. Um, my parents encouraged me, you know, to find a profession that would be helpful long term with my diabetes management, too. So I think um, diabetes, yeah, definitely was the biggest thing that inspired me. I, I have kind of a funny story, but when I was diagnosed, I was, I'm from a small rural town, and I spent, I think, two weeks in the hospital. And when I was discharged from the hospital and went back to my second grade class. I had missed so much of school that they wanted me to tell all about it. And so when I was well enough to go back to school, my teacher invited me to teach the class about diabetes. So, so that probably inspired me a little bit too, to eventually become a <laughs> diabetes educator. I don't know. No, probably did. And look, now all these years later and all the great work you're doing as, as a certified diabetes educator and, you know, going around the country speaking and conducting research now, it's really become full circle, I'm sure, for you. Yeah, it kind of has. So, no, it's, it's definitely. Um, so do you take a unique approach to treating patients with diabetes because you yourself have lived with type 1 diabetes for so many years? I'd like to think so, even though it might be subconscious. But from a patient's perspective, I think there's something about interacting with other people with diabetes. You know, even if you don't know anything else about them besides that they have diabetes also, I think that's a huge connection. Even when we met for the first time, Quinn, I thought, Oh, she has diabetes too. You know, you just have this <laughs> this huge connection. And the more you can connect with someone, the more comfortable you are with them and really um, start to care about them and how they're doing. So I, I think that definitely is an icebreaker for me. And hopefully I, I have more of a gentle approach or at least we can commiserate together as I meet with, <laughs> with patients. No, absolutely. I think it's a huge benefit that you bring uh, to, to treating your patients. Um, given your, you know, your unique personal experience and your professional background, what advice would you give healthcare professionals to best care for patients with type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder? That's a really good question because I think... Um, I've learned so much working with with young girls and women with eating disorders and diabetes over the past few years that I almost wish I could go back to my diabetes practice that I was working in um, and and see those patients again that were struggling with eating disorders because I think having 
um, like a weight neutral approach, as well as just the language we use in diabetes. When we're meeting with someone with diabetes, we have um, such a focus on numbers. You know, I remember circling all of the low blood sugars and all of the high blood sugars and asking patients about specific days, kind of what we can do better, what we can change. And sometimes that just isn't the right approach. And I feel like even as a patient, we are we feel judged every time we go to to meet with our our diabetes provider. Um, and so having a non-judgmental approach and maybe changing, yeah, changing our language a little bit. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to test your A1C, that that kind of denotes a pass or fail thing, you know, mm -hmm. where it's really not a pass and fail thing. It is more like a compass, not a report card. We're, we're looking at your A1C to see if we need to change a direction, you know, and I think having that type of tone in our language can really change our conversations and change the way that we care and treat patients with diabetes and an eating disorder. And I think it can really help them um, and hopefully motivate them to come back and find the recovery that they're looking for in their eating disorder. I think that's great advice, Jenica. I think that's really wonderful advice um, that you can pass on to healthcare professionals. Yeah, because um, having diabetes is hard, <laughs> you know? It's not something yeah. that, and it changes all of the time. I feel like one of um, one of the things I'm always talking to my patients about is you can do the same thing and it will work out great. You know, you eat the same thing, you give the same amount of insulin, and one day your blood sugars are in the range that you would like them to be in, and the next day, next day it doesn't work. <laughs> and so we have to um, make adjustments. You know, it's not going to be perfect all the time, but we need to have a plan in place and make adjustments as we need to. So, so yeah, yeah it's, it depends on the day, it depends on <laughs> what's going on, right? It's just, uh, I always say it's kind of like walking on a tightrope and you're balancing plates on your head while juggling, while, you know, um, <laughs> it's just exactly. different dynamics every day, and you hope for the best and just see where everything lands, and that's kind of life with type 1 diabetes. And I know, and that's why um, another thing, controlling your diabetes, I feel like that's such a misnomer because you, that insinuates that if you do everything that you're supposed to do to manage diabetes, that your blood sugars are always going to be perfect when we know that that's not the case. So yeah, so management, I think, is a much better term to use. Maybe we could just pass that little bit of information on to all the diabetes care providers. <laughs> We'd be all better off, I think. <laughs> right. Thanks, Jenica, so much for taking the time today to join me on this podcast. I think you're such a wealth of knowledge and it's even more fun for me to get to interview a friend of mine and uh, a colleague of mine. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is Ann Galt again, the host of the Diabetes Dish podcast. Thank you, Quinn, for alleviating me from my duties today. And thank you so much, Jenica, for sharing your important research. 
And to all the listeners out there, please go to On Track Diabetes for recipes, inspiration, and tips to live your best life with diabetes. Thanks, everybody. <music>